a lot of times we, we want to, you know, share Christ with people, but we don't have any relationship with them. You've got to have a relationship with people before you start, you know, you got to, you got to earn their trust and you got to earn their friendship. Because when you start talking about God, it's a heavy thing. And you start talking about a life change that they need to have. There's a, there's a whole wrestling match that's, that's going to go on and going to go on in their life after that. Welcome to the Christian Music Archive podcast, conversations about Christ, community, and music. I'm your host, Dave Maurer. Each week, I chat with a musical guest who is listed on the pages of the Christian Music Archive. There are thousands of creative men and women who have helped shape the soundtrack of the Christian faith, and we get to hear their stories, learn about how Christ has made a difference in their life, and hopefully along the way, we'll learn how we can be a better part of our community. One of the things you've probably noticed about this podcast is that there are no commercials. Now, I understand the need for advertising to help pay for various expenses, but so many times I feel like those announcements just get in the way. That is why I've chosen to ask you to partner with me through Patreon. Patreon is a crowdfunding platform that allows you to support the projects and causes that you believe in. And when you join Patreon in support of the Christian Music Archive, you help pay for the monthly hosting, production costs, and marketing opportunities that help spread the word about the work we are doing. So if you believe in remembering the women and men who have contributed to the soundtrack of our faith, I'd love for you to join and help out as a sponsor head over to patreon.com slash ccmexchange to learn how you can sponsor the work that I'm doing. That's patreon.com slash ccmexchange. And when you become a sponsor, you're helping us document the rich and amazing history of Christian music. So jump over to patreon.com slash ccmexchange today. And thanks for being a patron of Christian music. Today I'm privileged to be chatting with Lenny LeBlanc. Lenny got his start in music back in the 70s and had a couple of top 40 mainstream hits. I first became aware of Lenny LeBlanc when I was in radio, spinning the title cut from his uh, debut 1983 Christian album, Say a Prayer. He has gone on to write a number of worship songs like There Is None Like You and Above All, for which he won a Dove Award, I think, back in 2003. And in addition to more than a dozen solo albums, he's been a bass player and a studio musician working with the likes of Amy Grant, Ricky Skaggs, Don Moen, Twyla Paris, and, well, you get the idea. Lenny's a busy guy. <laughs> so it is with great honor that I welcome to the podcast Lenny LeBlanc. Good to be with you, Dave. Well, the Christian Music Archive is striving to document the music and spiritual histories of the musicians we love. And, and for a lot of people, those are two separate stories that often come together at some point. So if you don't mind, let's start your story with your musical beginnings. How did you get started in the music business? Well, it was really by accident. I was 15 years old, and uh, a friend of mine and I, um, I grew up on the east coast of Florida in Daytona Beach, and we would go surfing every day after school. And so we'd been to the beach, and we came home. He had a car, and so we stopped by his house, and his brother and several of his little friends were in the living room with their electric guitars, and they were playing songs that were on the radio, you know? Yeah. And of course we knew them and they looked at us and they said, Hey, why don't one of you guys come over here and sing? 
And so we looked at each other like, you're crazy. We can't sing. We're not singers. We're surfers. You know? <laughs> and so they kept on playing and I just sort of got really interested in it. And I walked over there and picked up the sheet music. I knew the songs, you know, one was house of the rising sun. Oh, sure. Not a great, not a great Christian song, but <laughs> it was, a, it was a song at that time, you know, it was big on the radio. And so I started, I started singing and they looked at me and they said, wow, you sound really good. I said, what? Really? They said, yeah. <laughs> let's put a band together and enter the talent show at, at, at school at junior high. And so I said, talent show, you think I've got talent? And they said, yes. And so we entered the talent show and we did that song and one other song by the animals, I think. And then, and we won. I mean, I was oh, so wow. nervous. I had never done anything in front of anybody. And I had my hands in my pockets and my back to the audience. I couldn't even face the people. And somehow we won. Oh, then wow. they got real, really excited. And, they said, we need to, uh, you need to get a bass. And I didn't even know what a bass was. And so they, they showed me a little bit about it. And I went down to Eckers Drugstore and I got a job washing dishes and saved my money. And two months later, I bought a bass guitar. And a couple of years later, I was making a living at it in the clubs, you know. Wow. So you started probably pretty regionally, right? Playing around Daytona Beach. and Right. Because I was still, you know, I was still in high school and and I left high school right after I graduated. My mom gave me a one-way ticket to New York City, and I was going to go seek my fortune. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so at, at some point, you recorded an album that came out, uh, and uh, I think it was called Hound Dog Man, right back in the uh, mid-'70s. Well, actually, it was that, ti that title was originally called Just Lenny LeBlanc, and it had a song that a friend of mine wrote about Elvis before he died. Okay. And... We released the record and it was kind of a door opener for me in the secular world. And uh, so then about, I guess about six or eight months later, Elvis died and they took that song and re-released it as a single and sent it to every radio station in the country and re-released the album entitled Lenny LeBlanc Hound Dog Man. Mm. And so there's two versions of that album out, out there. <laughs> <laughs> so did that kind of pave the way then to working with Pete Carr or was, was that before well, that? Pete, yeah, Pete had already produced that record. Pete and I go back to Daytona Beach where, um, you know, he grew up there and I grew up there. We were teenage friends and, and had a few bands together. He had originally played in uh, the, with the Almond Brothers in a band called um, The Hourglass okay. in, Cal in California. They had a record deal with Liberty Records. And he was, he was actually a guitar player, but he played bass on those two records. And when that band split up and the Almond Brothers were forming, he came back to Daytona Beach and he and I had a band. And then he moved... Uh, and right around the, that time, he moved here to Muscle Shoals and started a, a session guitarist career and played on all those huge hits that were cut here in Muscle Shoals, like all the Bob Seger hits, you know, or Main Street and all the Rod Stewart things that were cut here and yeah. all the staple singers. I mean, the list goes on and on. And so when I moved here in 73, it was because of him, you know. Ah, okay. And so he became my producer, my publisher. And so he produced that first record. And then he was... Uh, doing solo electric guitar records for Atlantic Records as well. And so the, the record label um, had the idea of teaming us up together as LeBlanc and Carr, and that's how that all kind of came to, to be in. Kind of like the Loggins and Messina and all of those other duos of the day. Yeah, right, in the <laughs> 70s, duos were, were big. Yeah, so then you guys did an album together, which had some pretty successful tunes on it, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, Falling was... Uh, a big record. It stayed in the charts 27 weeks. Wow. And so then, but you, you guys only did one record. What happened there? 
Right. Well, we only did one record and started touring, and he, he figured out he didn't like touring about a month into it. <laughs> so we were we had the same manager as the, as the Rolling Stones and Leonard Skinner, and and uh, so we got booked on the Skinner tour, uh, the tour that the plane crashed on. Oh wow! Uh, and so after about after that, he kind of got disillusioned with it, and and really just wanted to stay home and produce. You know, he, yeah. he, he was he was kind of a studio guy, you know, and he loved working in the studio. So. I went on and toured and the record label wanted to do another LeBlanc and Carr album. But I said, well, there is no LeBlanc and Carr, you know, <laughs> right. there's only one, one guy out there touring. And so that kind of ended it. And I went on and did a solo record uh, for Capitol Records. And then I, then I became a believer after that. So during your musical beginnings, what was your life like for you? Um, you know, we, we'd struggle as young musicians, you know, early on until I moved here in Muscle Shoals and started doing sessions it kind of all clicked for me. But before that, it was just kind of living week to week, you know, wherever you could get a club gig or yeah, this and that. And just kind of, and I, and I, I like making things with my hands. I built furniture for 40 years. And so I would do stuff on the side, you know, I build a deck for a friend, especially after I, um, you know, made the transition in the Christian music, I was signed to Capitol records, but they wouldn't let me out of my contract. Oh yeah. And so I had to do what I went for two years and, and, until they finally let me out. And you know, so I had to make a living somehow. I couldn't write <laughs> songs. I couldn't make records. Right. You know, because I was contra- contractually held up. And so, yeah, you know, just make a living any way you can, sort of like it is today with musicians. You know, it's even tougher now with with streaming and now this all this virus stuff, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, now I read somewhere that you really didn't turn your life over to Christ. In fact, you just mentioned that until you were in your 30s. Let's talk about yeah. how that decision came about. What was it that said, oh, I need to start looking at what a relationship with Jesus might look like. Yeah, I was actually 31 years old, and I had uh, just recorded that album with uh, Capitol, and had I think we had a top 50 single on that, and so they exercised the second option, mm-hmm. which meant I needed to do another record for them, and so I would try to you know, write those songs, and, and right about this time, uh, a friend of mine that had been to Vietnam, he was like an older brother to me, um, he called me one late one night and said, Lenny, I got saved. And he had become a smuggler in the meantime. Hmm. And uh, he had boats and planes and ship captains and pilots working for him and his partners. They are, they were big time smugglers. They weren't like little dope dealers. Oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, yeah. <laughs> and so he called and said, Lenny, I got saved and I'm going to heaven and I want you to be there with me. Are you saved? And I thought, man, just when things are going good. <laughs> I was, right. I was not looking for God. Yeah. God was, God was not, that was the last thing on my radar screen, but something about his voice um, just really struck me deep. I knew something profound had happened to him and I wanted to hear more about it. So he said, I'm going to send you a book. And so he sent me the Bible and he uh-huh. sent me this little, this little book about the last days, you know, the end times. Uh-huh. So I started reading the Bible uh, for the first time really in my house. And, uh, God began to show me how shallow my life was. I began to see myself like the rich young ruler. You know, I had all this success. I was doing well financially. I'd left my family six years before for my career. You know, my career was my God. Uh, he started exposing just who I was, you know, at the core. Mm-hmm. And and um, then I saw myself as the woman at the well. Even though I was, wasn't a woman, she had many relationships and, and and nothing ever worked out. And I thought if I could find the right person to share all this with, my life would be fulfilled, you know, and that never happened. And, um, until I got saved actually. But, uh, 
So I started reading the Bible and God began to reveal himself to me, reveal his forgiveness and his mercy and his love to me. And I just melted in my house. Dave, I would go after day after day and I would, I would just fall to, fall to my knees and ask forgiveness for things that I'd remembered, you know, and I didn't know who to share it with. I didn't know a Baptist from a Methodist. I didn't know <laughs> what to do. I didn't know how to pray. I didn't know how to come to God. And, and that book, that little book about the end times had a little prayer at the end of every chapter that you could pray and ask God into your heart. So I'd get down on my knees and pray that prayer after every chapter. I had about 18 chapters, so I got saved about 18 times that month. <laughs> really tie the knot <laughs> solid, right? <laughs> yeah, and then I, so I'd go out on the front porch, and I'd look across the street, and I'd say, those trees have never been that green. Wow. And just stuff like that. I began, my heart began to change about things, and I was just born again right there in my house. I didn't walk an aisle. I didn't shake a preacher's hand. And that just uh, goes to show you that God is big. Yeah. And he can, he can come to you anywhere. If you just invite him, he's there, you know, it yeah. doesn't matter where you're at or what kind of condition you're in. And uh, then I started meeting other people that were believers. You know, we had sort of a little revival in the music community about then. So I started meeting some other guys that had gotten saved too. And, you know, eventually got plugged into a church and, and made began that transition. Well, I've been very aware lately of several stories and you mentioned the woman at the well, but about people who have an encounter with Christ will have their lives changed. I think of the shy shepherds out in the field who, after they had an encounter with the baby Jesus, went back and told everybody about it. You know, right. you talked about the woman at the well who, uh, after she was confronted by Christ, she also went back and told everybody. So my question to you, after you encountered Christ, after reading that book, what was that transition like? Were you, I mean, I, you had some contractual obligations, obviously, did, did your songwriting change immediately, or was that a slow transition? It was a rocky transition, <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. Yeah? Uh, yeah, I was I was signed to Capitol Records, and uh, we had a at Muscle Shoals Sound. It was the big recording studio here, and they had the record deal. They had all the big records that were recorded here. And them and Fame Studios are the two big studios that okay. kind of brought this place on the map. And so... They had a subsidiary label with Capital, and I was signed to that label, and I was also a staff writer. So, you know, when I when I got this transformation happened in my life, I started to write those songs for that record to complete my contractual obligations. And I would start out writing a pop song, and by the time it got to the chorus, it'd be about Jesus. And and I thought, Capital's not going to want these Jesus songs, <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't. And and I I had no desire to write the other stuff. It wasn't like, okay, now you're a Christian, you can't do this pop record, you know. Right. It wasn't. It wasn't that at all. Um, I would have had no qualms about doing the pop record, um, but um, I, I just had a different desire. God took the desire away from me. It was like it wasn't important to me anymore. Even making a record wasn't important to me anymore. I just wanted to to. If I was going to write songs, I wanted to write songs about this God that changed my life. Yeah. You know, and so my manager thought I'd lost my mind. My friends thought I'd lost my mind. Capitol Records thought I'd lost my mind. And and so I I had to get what's known as a musician's worst nightmare, a real job. Because, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you know, Christian Records, Sparrow Records wanted to sign me, but it was, it was going to cost $30,000 just to get the contract away, you know? Oh, yeah. And that was big money back then for a Christian record. They only spent 25000 on their biggest artist. And they would have had to spend more than that just to get me. Yeah, yeah. And so and so, I went for two years and, and just, you know, made a living however I could. Build a deck for a friend. Or I started a little stained glass company. I made stained glass windows. And 
you know, I just did what, what I had to do and I never missed a bill. God was faithful and uh, eventually made the transition into, into Christian music. And he even struggled for five or six years after that, you know. Did, did your popularity in the mainstream help with the reception of your music or, or did you receive some of that same kind of, oh, here's, here's somebody trying to make good on the, this Christian, new Christian music scene? No, I think I think they they knew my story was legit, and I didn't have to go there. It wasn't a decision that I made because my other career was failing. It was a total opposite. And uh, at that time, a lot of Christian artists were trying to cross over into pop, and I'm thinking, <laughs> why are they doing that? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I'm going the other way. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think radio was really open to me because, oddly enough, a lot of the DJs that were in Christian music th- at that time were formerly uh, pop DJs, and they played my records, and so, you know, it was kind of, it was kind of a uh, a great uh, transition for me, and also a, an artist named Michelle Pilar. Oh sure, uh, recorded her first record here in Muscle Shoals, and a friend of mine was producing it. And she was looking through his records as they were doing the record, the recording, and she saw my uh, my my LeBlanc and Car album, and she said, "Oh gosh, I love this guy's uh, voice." I'd give anything if he could sing on my record. And she and he, my my friend said, "Well, he lives here, and he just got saved like six months ago." And so we got. She got in contact with me and ended up pulling two of her songs off of her record and putting two of mine on it. Oh wow! And and then created a duet with one of them, and it became a big hit. It was called "You Were There All Along." Yeah. And it was a big Christian hit, and so that was kind of a an introduction for for me into Christian radio before my records even came out. Gotcha. Yeah, so it was pretty pretty neat how that happened. Yeah, well, you released two or three albums of which are, which I would consider Christian pop, and then you started getting into worship music. What was that transition like for you? Well, you know, it was that kind of started from the, from the uh, first um, months I became a believer. I started going to this little church, my wife and I, and uh, the piano player quit, and she said, "Lenny, will you play piano?" And I had a piano in my bedroom, but I really wasn't a piano player, you know. I'm a guitar player. And so I was kind of thrust into that little position at church. And so I would play, you know, and, and then I began, uh, had a desire to write songs that would relate to my generation because the songs we were singing were like all day long. I've been with Jesus. It has been a wonderful day, you know, stuff yeah. like that. It was like camp meeting songs, you know, we're in, we're in the, we're in the Bible belt here. Yeah. And, and I thought, man, if I invite my friends here, they're going to think this is goofy, you know? <laughs> and so, I started, I started writing songs just out of the desire to, to reach my friends and to reach, you know, people that were, that were young, you know? Yeah. And so that's kind of where it was born. And then I began leading worship at at church, you know, and that was a whole um, experience too, because there was half the church that, that didn't want to go forward and and do the contemporary stuff and half of them uh, did. (laughs) So that was like a war, you know, we call it the worship, worship wars, you know? Yeah. Where you, you couldn't bring an electric guitar in the church or you're, you know, it was of the devil. Right. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. I tell these guys now that, that bring all this stuff. They got lights. They got smoke. They got camera. I said, you guys don't, you guys don't know how good you got it. <laughs> really? Well, yeah. I, I was just talking a, a few weeks ago with an A&R director at Integrity, and they mentioned that, uh, or he mentioned that a lot of the early Hosanna stuff was recorded because... Uh, Integrity Hosanna got this music truck that they would go around to different churches and record music. Was that how you got hooked up with Integrity? Um, actually, um, 
Yeah, a friend of mine, uh, Charlie LeBlanc, who's not re not related to me. I produced I produced him and his wife's records, and uh, he was from St. Louis, and he knew Tom Brooks, who was the producer of all the early in Integrity Hosanna records. Okay, and he said, "Man, I need to I need to introduce you to Tom and get you singing on some of these records." And so I, I got introduced to Tom, and I would go up and sing as a background vocalist on a lot of the early Hosanna records. I'm probably on about. Seven out of ten of them, I'm singing as a background singer. Okay, all the all the Ron Canoli records and all those early yeah. things, all the early Don Moen records. And so I met Don Moen there one night at Tom's. He just happened to be in there in the studio. Yeah, and he said, "We need to do it. We need to let you lead worship on one of these records." And so they came to my church, and actually, all the a lot of the stuff was recorded in the studio. The tracks were recorded in the studio, and then they'd bring them to the church, and they they they'd uh, record their worship leader and maybe a choir live along with okay. the soundtrack. And okay. some of them recorded, uh, you know, that had a bigger budget were recorded live with the with the, with the truck, like the Ron Canoli records, and they were videoed. Just depended on on what kind of budget there was for the record. Sure. So, but so you got hooked up with them, and was Don running Hosanna Integrity at the time? Yeah, he was the vice president of the label, and he was kind of in charge of you know who got signed, yeah, and who didn't, who didn't. I mean, he was the one that brought Hill songs to the to the label. Okay, you know. So you started with them more as a writer, but you also were doing background vocals. What what was the transition to where you actually started? Well, I actually started with them as a background singer. I'd started before that. I started with Maranatha. With Maranatha. Oh, okay. Uh, I wrote for them uh, for about a year and did one solo record for them. Actually, two records. One with uh, Kelly Willard and Bill Batstone and uh, Rita Balash, Paul Balash's wife. Okay. It was called uh, The Red Letters, Songs from the Red Letters. And uh, so... Yeah, I'd done a few things with them and then transitioned into uh, a relationship with Integrity um, as a background vocalist and then as a songwriter. I never really wanted a exclusive songwriting uh, agreement after that because I, I was writing more than just uh, worship songs. I would write a few positive country songs. Like mm -hmm. I had a Ricky Skaggs recorded one of my songs. I had one of my songs called Treat Her Right that was on one of the Integrity records that um, a group called Sawyer Brown, a country band, recorded it, and they they had a number one country record on it. Yeah, you know, so I really didn't I really didn't want to be an exclusive writer. Okay, and so I would just you know give Integrity a portion of, of my publishing. You know, we we had a deal where we just split it down the middle. You know, so it was an incentive for them, and an incentive for me. As yeah. Well. As we mentioned, you met Don Moen, and, and that's a significant uh, introduction because you've Huge. gone on for the last what, 20 years or so to tour with Don, right? Huge, huge uh, part of my life, Don Moen is. Um, you know, not only signing me to the label, but, you know, when it came time to do another record, I didn't have an exclusive rec a recording contract, so we went just went record by record, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Are they going to do another, another record or, or are they not? I never knew, you know. Yeah. And so Don would always, you know, be in the meetings, and he said the, the accountants would say, look, we can't do another Lenny record. Look, look what his last one sold. It didn't, didn't really sell, you know? Yeah. And then Don, Don would go back and get the publishing statements and bring them out. He said, yeah, but look what his songs made us. <laughs> <laughs> a number, a number one country record, you know, there's none like you, one of the most recorded songs in the history above all, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. he said, he would say, yes, we're doing another Lenny record. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, during that time when I was making those records, Don was touring all over the world, you know, and I would go, I would come, I would see him and I'd say, Don, just let me go with you. I'll sing backup for you and I'll just play acoustic guitar and sing backup for you. I don't have to sing any songs. I just want to go with you. 
And he thought, he always thought I was, he never took me serious, you know, and I would, I would tell him time after time. And finally he said, you're too good to go with me and be a background singer and a, and a guitar player. I said, no, I'm not. I said, I want to go. And so he finally let me go. And, and man, it's just been amazing what, you know, we've traveled the world together, like probably three times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We were just in Houston together last, last weekend, you know? So what was it that caused you to be so insistent on being uh, on the road with Don? I just felt there was a there was a connection there, and I really wanted to go to the nations. I really just wanted to to see other places and to you know worship with other 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 countries. And I would get emails from all over the world about my songs. You know how they were touching people in India and Africa and Asia. And I said, I want to go meet these people. I want to go worship with them. You know, and and because of Don, I got the ability to do that. Well, one of the things when I first started this podcast that I hoped was that we would be able to talk about the importance of community, because I think that in the past decade or so, we have really lost that as a country, as a, as a world, as a culture. And yeah. I heard from what you shared with us so far, I've heard two community stories that I think are really important. One is your buddy who said, hey, Lenny, I've just become a Christian and I want you to be there too. Talk about the importance of that relationship and how, what made it that you were open to what he had to say. I think um, a lot of it has to do with, with the credibility of, your, of who you're around and who you know and what they, what they know of you. You know, um, With him, I knew him as a person. He would sleep between my brother's bed and mine on the weekends. He was mm. six foot four. And we would wake up on a Saturday morning and he was laying on the floor between our beds. You know, that's, that's how far back we go. Yeah. So I knew him to the core, you know, yeah. and I respected what he was saying, even though I might not have known much about it. I wanted to hear about it because I knew him and I knew who he was. And, and I think a lot of times we, we want to, you know, share Christ with people, but we don't have any relationship with them. Yeah. And you've got to, you've got to have a relationship with people before you start, you know, it's different if you're in the pulpit preaching. That's different. Sure. I'm talking about one one on one. You want to reach people. You gotta you gotta earn their trust and you yeah. gotta earn their friendship. Uh, because when you start talking about God, it's a heavy thing. And you start talking about a life change that they need to have. You know, it's there's a there's a whole wrestling match that's, that's going to go on. We're going to go on in their life after that. You know, when they when they finally say yes, okay, God, is this real? You know, <laughs> then the wrestle then the wrestling match starts. <laughs> yeah. I work with an organization that does um, compassion care around the world, and and their philosophy is you have to have that relationship. You have to fill empty yeah. stomachs. You have to uh, teach yeah. people who don't have a living in order for them to be interested in hearing your story and, and to earn right. the right to hear your story. Yeah. That's exactly right. So then it's fun for me because my hope in these community relationship conversations when I talk about this is a lot of people are talking about what they're getting. But then your relationship with Dawn is community in the reverse of that, in the giving of yourself to, to Dawn and his ministry. Well, uh, I don't know how to explain how that how that is, but I guess it's just, I don't know. Uh, I just seen him and I watched him and, and he, you know, we go to these foreign countries like we went to Uganda and we had the president's security team. Mm. We had his, the first lady of Uganda welcomed us into her into her house wow and every time we go somewhere the vice president wants to meet with him so some some big politician wants to meet with him the president wants to meet with him he's like an ambassador to the nations for for christ it's just unbelievable yeah 
and he has such integrity. He's like Billy Graham. I mean, he's like, hmm. he's such, he's such the real deal that you just want to be involved with him. And that's, that's what I felt. That's what I sensed. He was just so real. And I said, I want to be with this guy. I want to partner with him. And whether I have a, a back seat or a side seat, I don't really care. I just want to partner with him and, and learn from, from him, you know? And that community has gone on to be a two-way street, obviously. I mean, you've provided support and encouragement to him and vice versa. He's provided that to you. He really has. And, uh, you know, I sort of made a transition last, uh, the end of last year and uh, decided I wasn't going to travel anymore. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, this is before all the virus stuff even happened, but I just felt like, you know, I've done about two, two and a half million miles in coach, <laughs> not, not business class. Like he flies. I said, right. I, I'm, I think I'm done, Don. <laughs> and so he's not letting me get over it. So I, you know, I started designing houses actually in right. the last, uh, yeah, the first of the year, and so I really love that. I'm just a creative person, and I I love create creating things and and building things. And so you know, I'll still do you know some traveling with him, but I've sort of just taken a different different path. I think I'm just on a, in a different season. Yeah. You know? Well, and what, you mentioned this early on when you were trying to uh, pay bills between record deals. You started doing woodworking, and and uh, yeah. I jumped on your Facebook page, and oh my goodness, saw some of the stuff that you've done and the houses that you designed. <laughs> that is, uh, that's an amazing, impressive stuff that you've done. Talk a little bit about how that became kind of a passion for you. Well, my wife and I had a really beautiful home on 20 acres and it was, you know, I was mowing all 20 acres and it was just, it was more than we really needed. And so we put that house up for sale and I started uh, learning a CAD software to design homes Okay. so I could, so we could build another house, smaller one, you know? And so I t- it took like a year and a half to learn that software. It's pretty heavy duty stuff. And uh, so I got really proficient at it after I uh, designed this house we're living in now and built it. I built this house myself. Okay. And, uh, so after we moved in, I had a few people approach me about doing home plans for them. And so I did a few house plans and then I was approached by a young builder here who's was builder of the year last year. He's a really great builder, does a, builds some incredible houses and, uh, uses a lot of state of the art techniques. And, and, uh, so we kind of teamed up and I've been doing their, their designs and I've done 14 house plans wow. since the first of the year. Yeah. Yeah, it's really exciting. I, I love doing it. So, so it, you had mentioned that this is kind of a new season of life for you. It, do you find? I don't know how to ask this question. Talk about the call of the Lord on your life in this season when it may not be in front of crowds. How does how does God's call on your life transition into the work that you're doing now? I think we, you know, I think we we sometimes get caught up in too much too much in uh, in what we do rather than who we are. And uh, I think that God can use us anywhere. And uh, you know, I'm around I'm around a lot of non-believers mm-hmm. uh, as I'm doing this new venture. You know, and uh, it's really kind of exciting because I get to make friends with people and you know drop a hint here and there, you know, about Jesus and. And it's amazing what, you know, how God can use you in those different situations if you just be open to it. And, you know, for a while, when I was younger, I, I thought, you know, my, my career was my identity in, in a lot of ways, you know, and instead of my identity being in Jesus, you know, and I, the older I got, the more I realized that that career is not going to be around forever, yeah. but Jesus is, you know, and your identity needs to be in him. And so this transition, even though I love music, I've been doing it all my life and 
I almost got tired of doing it. I know that sounds bad, but I just got bored with it. You know, not bored with, with reaching out and doing worship concerts and worshiping that, not that part of it, but just the, you know, thinking about making another record and, oh my gosh, I got to, <laughs> oh, I got to do an Instagram now. I got to do a video now. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm just so over it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, that part of it. So, and I know that's part of it, but it's just not, it's not part of it for me anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate what you said that the, the, the focus is on God has a relationship with us and wants us to be using that in whatever circles we're in. Yeah, and yeah, I think, wherever. Yeah, and I think a lot of times, especially, well, I'm, I'm just saying it this way. I think a lot of times we go, God, I'm going to do something amazing and great for you today. I'm going to go solve this problem or I'm going to do this. And really what Jesus wants is us to be in relationship with the people that he puts around us. Exactly. Yeah, I don't feel any pressure anymore. <laughs> <laughs> So, so have you have you hung up the writing pen permanently, or do you still dabble? Or I, I think just for a season. Yeah. Um, you know, I know I'll write again, and I'll pick it up again, and I'll and I'll I'll continue to do a few uh, concerts. You know, in the U.S. Uh, when when the when the opportunity arises with Don, you know, and I just I just have to put super glue on the tips of my fingers because my calluses <laughs> are all gone. <laughs> right. Right. But I can get I can get through a night. You know. <laughs> One of the things that we do, um, and on a weekly basis, we send out a prayer letter to our, our team and ask to pray for specific artists. How can we be specifically praying for you in the days and weeks to come? Uh, just that I'll, I'll stay on the right, right path, you know, and that I'll continue to follow the Lord uh, and stay true to Him. I'd like to thank Lenny LeBlanc for spending time with us today. You can learn more about Lenny LeBlanc and his music on our website, thechristianmusicarchive.com. Once you are there, click on the Artist tab and search for Lenny LeBlanc to see his discography, read about his life story, and see some of the projects that he's worked on. I've also got links to his website and social media profiles there as well. While you are there, you can also look for some of your other favorite artists. I've documented more than 10,000 albums and nearly 2,000 people from a huge variety of genres and decades. And I'd like to invite you to come back again next week when I have another great interview all queued up. But until then, remember this. God loves you. In fact, he's crazy about you. <laughs>